you are staying in here, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. You should be close. (laughs) Mark chapter 12 is kind of where we'll begin this morning, and we'll be in a lot of different places throughout um, the scriptures this morning. Before I get started, um, I just want to... Thank you and thank Brian um, for just the opportunity to open God's Word here at Grace Bible at least once a month. I get this um, privilege of opening God's Word to you and, and teaching. And uh, this is a special place. Um, and I hope you know that. That this is a special family that we have here at Grace Bible Church. And we have a very special teaching pastor in Brian McKenzie. Um, Brian has been an encouragement to my life and... As we finished up Habakkuk last week, if you weren't here for Habakkuk 3, you want to go online and listen to the sermon from last week. Um, The minor prophets uh, get skipped over uh, quite often as we are reading through our Bibles. And I hope that you saw in that series through Habakkuk that um, the minor prophets are extremely relevant to our lives um, today and for all of history and for all eternity. Um, It was a blessing to hear Brian teach through Habakkuk 3, and I'm looking forward to in a couple of weeks beginning a series in Acts as Brian teaches us um, through the book of Acts. Um, I hope you're excited praying about what God will do through us as a body of Christ called out to be on mission for him in um, the Brazosport community in the United States and throughout the world. And uh, so I just want to express my gratitude. And our students this weekend, while they're not here, I want to brag on them just a little bit. Um, I had the opportunity of leaving yesterday with our our students um, to go to winter camp. And we had some great small group discussion time uh, uh, Friday evening and Saturday morning. And we have a special group of students. Um, I saw them serving and loving one another. And as somebody... Um, sorry. Um, as somebody who works with students and teaches students, you often think, are they hearing me? Are they getting this? Um, you can teach and teach and week in and week out, do life with them, and you're like, I don't know that they're getting it. Um, and this, offer, this weekend I did have the opportunity to see that they get it. Um, we have some students that really get it, and they just really love the Lord, and they love each other, and they were serving one another. Um, and that was just beautiful to see. And so I'm just really proud of them. Um, and part of this emotion is probably that I'm exhausted um, from being at winter camp with them. Um, but uh, it, was, it was a great time. And so I just want you to know that about our students while they're not here. I don't want to get big heads. But we have a really great group of students at Grace Bible Church. And I'm very proud of them and I'm thankful for them. As you know, if you've been here for any length of time, uh, over the last year, beginning in May of last year, I started teaching a sermon series called Crossing Culture. Um, And and in that, we've tried to take different issues that are facing our culture, um, look at them through a biblical lens, examine them, see what scriptures had to say about these issues and how we might talk to our neighbors and our family and our friends about these issues. And today um, is kind of going to be a period on that sermon series. Um, We may come back 
uh, to some issues, if, if there's something that we just feel like we need to talk about this as a church, um, we may come back to those. But what I want to do this morning is to help you have a lens and, and a filter through which you think about these issues on your own. As you're going about your week, as you're scrolling through your Facebook news feed, as you're on Twitter or watching the news or whatever it is, um, that you would be able to have some kind of uh, a framework to look at these issues and, and go, now how does God see this? Um, too many times we are very quick to run to Fox News or CNN or some commentator that we like on the radio or whatever it is and ask, well, what do they think about it? What are they saying about it? But the most important voice that we can hear on the issues that face our culture and our society is the voice of God. And so we want to have a framework by which we can go to these issues and say, how does God think about this? How does he expect Christians to think about this? How am I, as a believer in Jesus Christ, to think about this issue, to speak to this issue, to vote on this issue, whatever it is? And so today, I've entitled the sermon, Love Your Neighbor, How the Gospel Shapes Our Politics. Yes, I'm going to preach on politics. How dare I do that, right? Um, and, and so people say you shouldn't mix religion and politics. And if you're ever in a crowd of people, if you want to be sure to be left standing alone, start a conversation about either religion or politics, and you'll be left standing alone. Um, but I think the, go the Bible and the gospel have a lot to say about our politics. Um, what, what does that have to do with the Christian life? If you follow the church um, Twitter account or follow us on Facebook, you probably saw this morning that we tweeted out, every Christian is called to politics. And some people would, would well up at that and say, absolutely not. Um, some people may say, yes, charge on, right? Um, but here, here I want to first define politics for you because many people misunderstand what politics is. We think of politics as being in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, or being in Austin, Texas at the Capitol, or serving in government in some way. And that's not what I'm talking about this morning when I say every Christian is called to politics. The definition of politics is this, the practice and theory of influencing other people on a global, civic, or individual level. If we take the definition of politics, and that means that every believer in Jesus Christ is called to a life of politics, of influencing people on either a global, civic, or individual level. We are called to relationships, to build relationships with people around us and to influence them for the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Christians are called to politics. Jesus calls us to it in Mark 12. Beginning in verse 30, read with me. Jesus here is repeating the Shema from Deuteronomy. He says this in verse 30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And many times we've heard this scripture read, we've read it ourselves, and we've never thought that this passage is calling me to politics. 
These are the two greatest commandments Jesus says that we have to live by. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That has great implications on everything that you do in your life, including how you vote and how you influence your world. We are called to politics, number one, to reflect his character. We are called to politics to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. If we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, that will involve voting for certain things or voting against certain things. If I love the unborn child in the womb who is my neighbor by definition, then I vote against the slaughter of millions of unborn children throughout this country. There are people living in other societies around the world that don't have the privileges that we do here in America to love our neighbors as ourselves and vote and actually enact things that will protect our neighbors' lives and well-being. And so as we look at that, what that involves and what that entails, we need to understand why we're called to this and what that means for us. And and the first thing it means is we reflect His character. See, God is the author of humanity. That means something. That means that God is the designer of the world and everything in it for His glory and for our good. God has designed this world in such a way that it would bring him the most glory and it would be good for humanity. In the beginning, Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Then a little further down in chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. Every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food to eat of every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning. The sixth day. So God had a design for the world. He had an order in which the world was supposed to work. He made man the crown of his creation. He said you should have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the earth. You should subdue it. You should use it. We read when he created Adam, he created him to cultivate the garden and to keep it. If you don't think that that has a bearing on your ecology or your view of how we should steward this earth, then you're mistaken. This text bears on our responsibility to be conservationists in some way because God has given us dominion over this earth. 
God has given us dominion over the animals. He gave us an order. He created man, male and female. He doesn't say he created anybody in between. He's created an order. And in Genesis 3, man completely flips the order. When he disobeys God and he allows a snake to trick him into disobedience. The woman is tempted by a snake and the man just follows along with the woman. And God's order and his design is completely flipped on its head. And from there, we have nothing but brokenness in this world. But that doesn't negate the fact that there is a design. And right after God curses the snake, curses the man and the woman, curses the earth, He promises that one is coming who will crush the head of the serpent. He will fully and finally defeat sin. And this world will return to the order in which God created it. It will be reconciled to Him. And it will fully and finally work as God designed it to work. And so even in our brokenness, we are called to reflect His character and that He's the author and He is the designer of how humanity should work. And so we look to Him for how He designed our society, how He has designed relationships to work. And we call people to live by God's design because it is for their good. And for his glory that he designed it the way he did. He designed nature. He designed marriage. Genesis 2 is not good, God says, that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to man to see what he should call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the heavens, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed it up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God designed marriage. Washington, D.C. doesn't get the right to define marriage. The Supreme Court justices, no matter what they decide in June, it's not under their authority to determine what marriage is. We can call it so-called same-sex marriage because same-sex marriage is not a thing. Marriage is by definition what God has called it to be. One man, one woman for a lifetime. He designs it. So we as Christians reflect his character and we call our culture back to God's design for humanity. Not because we're bigots. Not because we're hateful. Not because we don't want people to experience love. We want them to experience the greatest love there is. The love that Jesus Christ had for us. And that he gave up his life for sinners. 
And we want them to experience God's ultimate good and ultimate human flourishing through living the way God designed us to live. Not only that, but he designed government. Lest we think that government is some man-made institution that we came up with to keep people from doing bad things, God designed government. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. For friends on Facebook or you follow me on Twitter, um, I posted a... A, uh, an article this last week in which the title the title was or the, the opening line was you always hear the line you can't legislate morality and he said the problem with that statement is you can't not legislate morality every law comes from some kind of moral framework that you have the question is which moral framework are we going to use are we going to use the one of the bible the one that god has designed and said is best for humanity are we going to use a moral framework from humanists or atheists or the secular world view in general or are we going to follow the moral um, laws of muhammad and allah what 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 are we going to follow there is a moral framework that we use in creating laws the question is which moral framework are we going to use god designed government romans 13 let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from god those that exist have been instituted by god therefore whoever resists the authorities resist what god has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for rules are not a terror to good conduct but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. God designed government. He sets up authorities. Any authority that we have has been put in place by God. Here in the United States of America, we've talked about this in previous sermons. Here in the United States of America, we the people are the government of the United States. So therefore, as we the people decide what laws we should put in place, we should look at the moral framework that God has given us. We should vote that way. We should encourage people to live by God's design so that they would experience the most good that God has meant for them. In a book called The City of Man, Religion, of Politic, Religion and Politics in a New Era by Michael Gerson and Pete Weiner, they write this, Laws express moral beliefs and judgments. Like throwing a pebble into a pond, the waves ripple outward. They tell citizens what our society ought to value and what we ought to condemn. What is worthy of our esteem and what merits our disapprobation. They both ratify and stigmatize. That is not all that laws do, but it is among the most important things they do. So we as believers, as we go to the polls, as we participate in our government and our society... We are to vote for laws that express things that our society ought to uphold and things our society ought to condemn based on the moral laws 
that God has given us. It is His design. And we are called to politics to reflect His character in our world. John Calvin said this, God was not only Lord and Creator, but a governor and a preserver, sustaining, cherishing, superintending all the things which He has made to the very minutest, even to a sparrow. The sovereignty of God, in other words, extends to all spheres, including all human institutions. The active purpose of the state, Calvin wrote, is to foster and maintain the external worship of God, to defend sound doctrine and the condition of the church, to adapt our conduct to human society, to form our manners to civil justice, to reconcile us to each other, to cherish common peace and tranquility. Beyond providing merely for peace and safety and civil authorities, according to Calvin, are the ordained guardians and vindicators of public innocence, modesty, honor, and tranquility. God is a governor, a preserver, a sustainer. We are called and made in his likeness to be the same here in our society. We're going to get to that a little bit later as we look at what Jesus has to say about his followers. But this is to say God is active in history. We reflect his character and that we are active in society. We don't sit back and watch it fall apart and cry, woe is me. And do nothing to call people back to the design that God had set in order. Because God is no watchmaker. God didn't create this world, wind it up, and step back and let it do what it was going to do. He is actively involved in his creation and in the lives of his people. In the Exodus, he raised up Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. And every time Moses came to Pharaoh and told him to let his people go, we learn from the New Testament, God was hardening Pharaoh's heart so he wouldn't do it. Why? Why did he do that? Why did he get involved in government? Why was he hardening the Pharaoh's heart? We learn so this power might be displayed in Pharaoh. So that the whole world would know who crushed Pharaoh. It was the God of Israel. That's who did it. He raised up Moses to deliver the people. He destroyed the Egyptian army in the sea. Israel didn't fight against the, the Egyptian army. They were running for their lives. God fought the Egyptian army on behalf of Israel. And he took them out. He is actively involved. He fights battles all through the Old Testament on behalf of Israel. He sets up rulers as we read in Romans 13. And ordains authority. He also tears them down. God is active in history. Therefore, we should be active in history. We don't sit back and cry, woe is us. We can't do anything when we live in a country where we can actually do something. Secondly, God came to us in our sin. He didn't sit in heaven and wring his hands about what to do after Adam and Eve disobeyed. No, in the very same chapter, he promises he's going to fix it. He didn't look on our sin and stay away, but he came to change our hearts. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. 
Philippians 2, 5 through 9 tells us though Christ was equal with God, he didn't see equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Taking on the form of a servant, he came in the likeness of man. He was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Christ was so willing to get involved that he emptied himself of the glory that he was due and came and walked on the earth among his creation, among sinners. And then he died for them. He gets involved. And as Christ's ambassadors, we serve to make God's appeal here on earth. And part of that appeal, appeal includes be reconciled to God. That's the main thing we've got to do. We're calling people to be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But we also serve as God's ambassadors, as moral guides, as a moral compass for those around us. God's given us His design in the scriptures for a reason we're to call people back to God's design we're also called to politics to obey his commands we're called to politics to obey Christ's commands love your neighbor as yourself that one statement bears a lot of weight on just about any political issue you can name Love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm, I'm going to put myself out there in saying this. This last week, Brian mentioned the measles outbreak in California. A lot of arguments going back and forth on, are you an anti-vaxxer or are you a vaxxer? you want to vaccinate your children? you not want to vaccinate your children? What's better? Um, you can go to erlc.com. There are a couple of really great articles written by some pediatricians on the ERLC. I'm not here to be your conscience, but I simply ask you this. What is better, to love your neighbor and have your child vaccinated so that these terrible diseases don't break out again, or to not vaccinate? We end up losing herd immunity, and thousands, maybe millions of people begin to die because these horrific diseases come back. See, love your neighbor as yourself bears some weight on that issue. In fact, it may be at the core of that issue. Do we love our neighbor as ourself? Where the issue of abortion is concerned, do I love my neighbor as myself? That unborn child in the womb is my neighbor. I want to have life. I want that child to have life. That simple statement bears on almost any political issue we bring up. But that's not the only place Jesus commanded us with things to do that should bear on our politics. Matthew 25, 31.
Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For while I was hungry, you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In this passage, we have a call of our king to feed the hungry, to give the thirsty drink, to come to the poor, the stranger to welcome them, to help the sick. This last week, if you keep up with the news, you heard a statement that our president made at the National Prayer Breakfast that was irresponsible, at least, um, in comparing ISIS to Christianity. Lest we get on our high horse and think that Christians haven't done evil things throughout the centuries, um, let's remember the Crusades and the Inquisition, right? It's a common argument that, that's made... Um, they point to things that happened thousands of years ago. But as we look at the scope of Christian history and over those who follow Jesus, we can see that Christians have been a force for moral good in the world far greater than any other religion that's on the face of the earth. If you drive into any major metropolitan area in this country, you will see hospitals that were started by Catholics, by Baptists, by Methodists, by Lutherans, by Episcopalians. It was a Christian who founded the Red Cross. The Church of Jesus Christ has heeded the call of their king and said, we will help the poor. We will go to the sick. We will go to the hurting. And even recently, as we saw, a Dr. Kent Brantley, who is serving in Africa among Ebola patients, get Ebola himself. There were people who criticized him for going and putting his life at risk for other people when there are people dying here at home. But he did it. And people do it because they have the call of Christ on their lives. And they will follow their king, even if it means death, to go to those who are sick and who are hurting. And those Ebola doctors were hailed by Time Magazine as the person of the year or people of the year in 2014. The call of Christ is the call to help the hurting, to love the least of these. James 1.27, to do good to the widow and the orphan. You can look online and there are articles being written almost weekly 
about Christians around the United States adopting at the highest rates we've seen in years. Because people are understanding their call to be a Christian as a call to go to the widows and go to the orphans. We're called to be salt and light in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. It doesn't help when I flip all the way back to Haggai. Um, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it in a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We go to the sick. We go to the poor. We go to the helpless. We break people out of slavery. We try to save unborn babies, not so that our name will be proclaimed. Kent Brantley didn't go over to an Ebola-infested area in Africa so that Time magazine would put him on the cover and hail him as some great person. Kent Brantley went because he understood that he is the salt of the earth, that he is the light of the world, and that he wants people from every tribe, nation, and tongue giving glory to the Father. We don't do this for our own glory, to say, look what we've done as Christians. We do it so that other people will glorify the Father who is in heaven. We are called to be salt and light in the world. The call to be salt refers to the followers of Christ as preservers of God's design in the world. Salt serves to preserve something. To call to a kingdom ethic that serves as a force for good in the world. But if salt has lost its taste, how can it be salty? Now, if there are chemists in the room, they're going, well, salt can't lose its taste. What they were using in Christ's day for salt was evaporation coming off these lakes, and after a while it would lose its flavor, and then they would just throw it on the streets to pave the roads, or they would put it on their rooftops to pave their patios. But the main characteristic of salt is that it's very different than the medium into which it is placed. When I put salt on my food, it's to enhance the flavor. The salt is very different than what's already there. And it serves to draw out other flavors. I watched Food Network, I learned that. Um, I'm just saying. Um, so, so salt is there to be very different from its surroundings. To draw something out. But if we as believers start to just look like our surroundings. And we start to take part in our surroundings. And we no longer stand out. We can't do what salt is meant to do anymore. We can have no effect on our society if we are living in such a way that we give approval to what society gives approval to. Romans 1 talks about this downward slope. Not only do they give approval to those who do such things, they practice them themselves. We're called to be salt. We're called to be different. 
That requires us to think. To be salt in this world. To call for a kingdom ethic in this world requires us to think. The first part of Christ's command for us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Before that, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We like to glaze over that. But we as believers are called to love God with our minds. It means we have to engage our minds. We have to think about things. We have to think about the issues that our culture faces. We have to think about how we're going to speak truth to our neighbors in love. It is not for the lazy. The fact that Christ followers are the light of the world, more specifically, is talking about our call to be missionaries and evangelists in our world. As we live a kingdom ethic, as we call people to a kingdom ethic, we actually call people to Jesus Christ and to salvation in Him. Only God can change their hearts. We cannot. We affect actions. Hopefully we help serve as a moral compass. But ultimately, our job is to call people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We're to be salt and light and lastly we obey the command to obey our laws in 1st Peter he tells us we are to obey our governing authorities we obey our laws so that we can call others to be obedient why are we obedient why do we follow the law if your friend asks you why why do you care about the speed limit Because Christ has called me to obey the laws. Why are you such a do-gooder? Because God has called me to obey my authorities. It all points back to his design. And his ultimate authority over all things. Lastly. Lastly. The reason the, the Christian is called to politics. Is to remind us of his coming. To remind us of his coming. As we live for the kingdom to come. As we seek to implement God's design for humanity here and now. It reminds us that we are not citizens of this world. This is not the end. No matter what legislation is enacted. No matter which politician sits in the Oval Office. God's kingdom will not be fully realized until King Jesus is coronated and is ruling finally and fully over the earth. That is when his kingdom is come. That is when his will will be done by every single person on this planet. And King Jesus is on the throne. Here we, we simply try to reflect God's character. In what we call our culture too. We try to reflect God's design. And where we see it, we can have hope and rejoice that God changes hearts and God changes people. And when we don't, we can be reminded this is not the end. Right now, abortion is still legal in the United States of America. Since 1973, we've killed 56 plus 
million unborn children. But one day, God will hear the cries of those 56 million children and he will avenge their blood. This is not our home. 1 Peter 2, go with me there. Probably years ago, I was talking with one of my professors about um, music and, and Southern gospel music in particular. Some of you in this room may have been raised in a church that sang Southern gospel music. You may have enjoyed it. Um, you may still enjoy Southern gospel music. And one of the things that's often um, uh, derided and kind of made fun of about Southern gospel music is that it's always about heaven. Always about heaven. I'll fly away. When the roll is called up yonder, right? Um, when we all get to heaven. Like every song about heaven. There's no kind of like deep theology. Like let's talk about who God is, his nature, his character, what he's done. Like it's all about heaven, right? And, and much of that came out of the 1950s after World War II. And people were weary and tired of war and destruction. And they just wanted to go home. They wanted to be done with this. And so all these songs are about heaven. Let's get out of here, right? And then we start shifting and realizing, okay, but we got to teach people something in the meantime, right? We have to say something in our songs about who God is. Who Christ is. What he's done. But as we were talking, my professor and I, he said, I'm, I'm afraid that the current generation has gone too far to the other side to start to believe that this is home. Like we, we've started drifting to this way where we're, we're comfortable here. We, we like it here. And this is the same fear that I have in, in preaching this sermon and calling you to be involved in politics and, and be involved in voting, being involved in hold, upholding God's character and his moral and 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 even physical design for his creation is that we would start to get comfortable here. We would start to rely on our legislation to fix the world's problems. Legislation is not going to fix our problems. Only Christ can change the hearts of people. So First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As sojourners and exiles, live to God. We need to be reminded that we are aliens here. We seek no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. Hebrews thirteen fourteen.
And finally, we will reign with Christ. We look forward to a day when we will reign with Christ. If we cannot be faithful stewards of our government here that has been given to us by God's grace, how will we be entrusted with governing alongside our king in the city that is to come? So as you leave this morning, what are, what are the implications of this message? Well, one is that you're called to be a citizen of the United States and to participate in the government in which you have been entrusted. There are people all over the world who would literally give their life for the opportunity to live in a society like this, where they actually get a say. And as Christians, we should take that stewardship seriously. Rather than sit back and cry, woe is me. We should seek to do what God has called us to do. Now, in a broken world, it's often very difficult. Things aren't often black and white. Well, I just don't know who to vote for. They're all corrupt. Well, pick the least corrupt one. Because that's what you've got to choose from. Get involved yourself. Whatever it is, we're called to steward this government that we have been given. Secondly, learn how to speak to your neighbors in truth and in love about the issues. If you don't know why you're against gay marriage, find out. And if you're thinking, well, I just don't have a good argument. There are plenty of people writing a lot of things. <laughs> ERLC.com, I can't recommend it enough. Um, the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission has some of the best gospel-centered biblical articles on how we as Christians can think about the current issues that we're going through and how we can speak in a loving way to our neighbors and our friends. Find books. Lastly, think. For hundreds, even thousands of years, Christians were thinkers. When people in society had questions about deep things, they would often find a pastor to talk to. Be a thinker. Learn. Because God has designed this place. God means for it to work a certain way, and we as his followers should be the ones to call people back to God's design. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together, to look at your word, to hear from um, you on how we can love our neighbors, how we steward um, the government, the society, the, the earth that you've given us. God, I pray that we wouldn't leave here and not continue to think on these things. God, I pray, though, that we, we don't think about these things in such a way that we think we can save America or make this place more comfortable for ourselves. But God, 
that we would look at these issues and see these as a way to glorify our creator and our designer and that other people's hearts would be turned to Jesus. And that God ultimately it would point to the coming kingdom. In which Christ will rule and reign. And God, I pray that we would keep our eyes focused on Christ. Keep our eyes focused on the end. This world is not what we live for, but we live for a city that is yet to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask that you stay seated. This morning is uh, our communion Sunday. We're going to take communion together. I'm going to call the guys up who Greg asked to help pass out the elements this morning. Um, right now, if you would make your way up to the front. We do practice open communion here at Grace. Um, what we mean by that is if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you have put your faith in Him, then you are welcome to participate in this supper with us. Um, we do request that only believers participate. If you're not a Christian, just let the plate pass by you. If you are here and you're not a believer and you're like, what is all this about? I would encourage you to ask someone around you. Find one of us after this service. We'd be happy to tell you what this is all about. They're going to pass out the elements and as they do, we're going to sing up here and you just hold those and we will give you further instructions as we take this together. Guys, you can go ahead and